Welcome to the Renaissance Christian Church Podcast. We're a church family with the mission of seeking God, serving others, and sharing the gospel. We're grateful that you have joined us as we study through the Bible, and we hope that it brings you encouragement and inspiration for your daily life. Here's Pastor Robert Fonseca. All right. Well, let's get into uh, God's Word today. Uh, turn your Bibles with me to uh, first, oh, not first Peter. It's in Romans, Romans chapter eight. We are continuing our study on the resurrection. And today's title is Hope for Today. Uh, we've been talking a lot over the past now four weeks about the resurrection, and in particular about what the resurrection has for us in the future, the reality of our future. But today I want to talk about what about today? What has the work of Christ, meaning his life, his death, burial, and resurrection, given the believer today? And for this, we're going to turn to the book of Romans, as I mentioned, chapter 8, because the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Rome about what the resurrection, and in particular, the entire work of God, has given us today. And after seeing all these things, I pray that you will take from this as an application a couple of things. One, I pray that your love of God will continue to increase. And then secondly, I pray that your trust in God, it increases in the midst of the current trials that we face as a world, and even as the current trials that you're facing individually. And so again, I think the things that Christ provides for us today will comfort you in all these areas. So let's turn to the text, Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to try to get through the entire chapter today, uh, so we'll see how that goes. So I'm going to move quickly, and I'm going to acknowledge right now that we're going to hit about 10 points, and each of these points could be expanded onto individual sermons themselves, so I'd encourage you to take the time over this week and read through Romans chapter 8 and, and look at each point that I bring up uh, in, a, in a, a more comprehensive way. We're just going to touch on them along the way. So let's begin at verse 1. And again, what is today's hope for the believer? And the first one we find in number 1 is that we are free from condemnation. Let's read verse number 1. It says, Therefore, uh, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the very first thing that the work of our Lord provides for us today as believers is there's no condemnation. We're free from condemnation. And who is that we that the apostle is talking about? At the very end of verse 1, he says, those who are in Christ Jesus, those who trust in Christ's redeeming work for their own salvation, that's who this promise is for. And what is that promise? It's being free from condemnation. And condemnation basically is the pronouncement of somebody being guilty. And the entire human race stands guilty before God because they've sinned against God. As a matter of fact, Paul earlier in Romans chapter 3, and particularly in verse 23, he says this, For all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. Paul is telling us here that those who are in Christ, they're not guilty of these things. They are pronounced 
innocence. Again, those who are in Christ presently are freed from the condemnation of sin. We do not suffer the wrath of God for our sins. And we no longer have that sentence or execution of this sentence looming over us in the distance. Right? We don't have a trial date before the Lord for our sins. They've already been forgiven. We are not guilty. There is going to be no execution of the sentence for our guilt. And why is that? That's because God's condemnation of sin has been poured out on His Son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. If you look at verse 2, that's what he's describing here in verse 2. He says this, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and the law of death. So because of this law of the Spirit of the life in Christ, and when we say law in this context, we're talking about the ruling authority. So the ruling authority of the Spirit of our life in Christ has come into our hearts because we believed, thus we are in Christ. And because we are in Christ, we are set free from the ruling authority of sin and of death, which leads me to my second point this morning about what we have in Christ because of what he's done, and that's that we are free from the law or the ruling authority of sin and death. Like he's in verse 2, that's what he said. And the law of sin and death are really tied together. Uh, in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the Apostle Paul writes this, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, because we are in Christ, the sentencing of death because of sin is gone. It's gone. We're no longer guilty of sinful crimes against God. Just think of that. All the sin that we've committed in our past, the sin that we are committing in the present time, and all sins that we will commit in the future have already been forgiven in Christ. Again, we don't have that sentence of death because our sinful crimes, again, against God have been paid for by Christ. And that's what verses 2 through 8 explains. And we're going to go through that quickly so you see what I'm talking about here. So let's start again in verse 2 and go through verse 8, and I'll point some things out along the way about how all this applies to us. So verse 2 again, he says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of our sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So here in verse 3, it's telling us that God sent his own Son as an offering for us, in order to redeem us, in order to redeem us from the requirements of the law. And not only that, we are able now to fulfill the law because of what Christ has done. We can walk according to the Spirit correctly because of what Christ has done. Again, God sent His Son to die in our place. And now we have been made righteous. And now we, through our life in the Spirit, can justly fulfill the law of God. And that's what verse 4 says. Look at this. He says, In order, about sending His Son, 
in order that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The only reason or the only way that we can fulfill the requirements of the law is because Christ is in us. Outside of that, we cannot, and therefore when we don't, we are guilty of sin against God and ultimately of death. Right Before Christ, in verse 5, it talks about, uh, let me read that to you, verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. There are two realms here. There's the, the fleshly realm, just real, uh, an easier way to say it, is those that are without Christ, and then there's the spiritual realm, that those who are with Christ. And so there's two different people that Paul is talking about here. Those that are in the flesh, they cannot fulfill the law as much as they try whether it's they don't have the ability to do it or they really don't, it's really the motive or the purpose of them fulfilling the law. They're trying to please God by fulfilling the law. And the law wasn't given so that we can please God. The law was given to show us our need for God. And not only that, if you remember the Ten Commandments weren't given again so that, hey, this is how we please God. No, this is how we have a relationship with God. This is how we live before the Lord. And before Christ came, we could not do that in a just and righteous way. And so this is what Paul is explaining to the church. I like what one commentator said about what Christ has done for us. Uh, His name is Douglas Moo, and he says this, Christ became what we are so that we might become what Christ is. It's the great exchange. Christ came and took our sins upon him, and he gave us his righteousness. And it was all done because of God's grace. So again, the first two things that we see that are uh, beneficial for us now or the, the reality that we have now in Christ, again, is that number one, there's no condemnation for us. We're not guilty of sin any longer. And we have been freed from the ruling authority of sin and death. So even though we sin... We are not guilty of that execution of death. We will not face death, eternal death, away from God. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a few moments. Let's drop down to verse 9 now where we pick up our third point. The third point is this. Now because of what Christ has done for us and because we are in Christ, verse 9 tells us that the Holy Spirit of God now dwells in us. The Holy Spirit of God now dwells in us. Look at verse 9. So he goes, However, you are not in the flesh, it's that fleshly realm, but in the Spirit. And if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So you either belong to Christ or you don't. And if you belong to Christ, then the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. That is a reality for the believer today, right now. That's our hope. God's Spirit is now active and alive in those who are in Christ. The day that you trusted the Lord God for your salvation, His Spirit came upon you and took residence in you. God's Spirit is now living in us. a matter of fact, in verses 12 through 13, if you drop down to verses 12 and 13 in your Bibles, 
it explains that we are now led in our life as believers by the Spirit of God. Look at what it says. So then, brethren, we are not under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But by the Spirit, this is God's Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That describes our current process. We are putting uh, to death the deeds of the flesh. We no longer live that way. We're following after God. Now you might ask, well, if that's true, then how come I still sin against God? How can we still sometimes choose to do the wrong thing? If God's Spirit is dwelling in us, how come we're not perfect now? Well, let me tell you why. We still have a sinful nature. We still have this fleshly body. We're still tempted in all sorts of ways. And until that final uh, resurrection of our body, we will not be perfect. We have to live in these two realms. If you look in the previous chapter, in Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about this extensively. And I want to highlight just a few verses, uh, starting in verse 21. And again, this is explaining why do we still sin against God if, if we have all these things and we are uh, righteous and God's Spirit dwells in us. Well, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, I find then the principle or the principle that evil is present in me. Remember, the Apostle Paul is a believer and he still has evil present in him. He has not been fully delivered from that. He goes on to say, the one who wishes to do good, talking about, I wish to do good, but I still have this evil in me. He goes, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of this death. So he talks about this warring going on in his own body. Again, that's that sinful nature that we still have yet to be delivered from. So we have this sinful nature and this spiritual nature for believers that wage war against one another. But the Holy Spirit lives in us and it gives us the ability to overcome that sinfulness. This is something that the non-believer does not have. They might have the desire, but they don't have the ability. We as believers both have the desire to not sin, and we have the ability by the power of the Spirit of God. And so therefore, we can rejoice that the Holy Spirit of God dwells in us now. And that moves, let's move now to our fourth point. Uh, today's hope for the believer, point number four is this is that we live with the assurance of eternity. We have this assurance, and a lot of times we say hope, but what we mean is assurance. Right now, you as a believer have an assurance that one day you will move on to a different realm in this world, the eternal realm. Not only a quality or quantity of life, but it's going to be of a different quality. It's going to be totally different. Look at verses 10 and 11. The Apostle Paul writes this, And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. 
But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give your mortal bodies or give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells in you. You see, this assurance that we have, again, is built upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as verse 11 states. You can know that you have eternity as a believer. Again, you have this new quantity or quality of life awaiting you, and you live with that at this very moment, this understanding of it. You don't just live for this life as a believer. You know, our hope and our dreams as believers are not in this life alone. We have so much more in store, and we talked a little bit about that last week. Christ has something more for us in the reality that's yet to come. And so we have this assurance. We live with that. Again, this world is not the end all and be all. We have so much more waiting for us. And again, that's made possible because of Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And so we have that assurance of eternity. We don't wonder what's out there or is this all there is. We have this blessed assurance. Let's move on to the next section now. And our fifth point this morning is that we are children of God. Look at the start in verse 14 and read through verse 17. The Apostle Paul writes this, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading, us, or leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children of God, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if, when, if indeed we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Again, all that to say is that we are children of God. We have been adopted by God. That's what verse 15 tells us. Every person in world history has been created by God, but only those who are adopted by God are His children. That is something special. God chose you to be His child. He is our Father, and we are His children, and we have all the rights that a child would, ex- would have of, from his father, protection, provision. And not only that, we have an inheritance that is reserved for us, as we learned last week, in heaven. And again, verse 17 stresses that, that we are heirs. We have an inheritance from God who is our father. Now, even though this inheritance cannot fully be experienced now, we have that assurance that we have it. And that one day, we are going to fully experience who God is and this inheritance. And not only that, if you notice again in verse 17, that we are heirs along with Christ. Meaning all the blessings that belong to Christ will one day will be our blessings. We will, be, we will, experience, them, we will experience them with Christ. It says we will be glorified with Christ. And again, all this is promised to us now and just some of it we experience in the future. And because of that, this brings me to my next point, is we live 
with the anticipation of eternity. We look, or we should as believers, look forward to the world to come. We should not hold this world too tightly. Look, at, look with me at verses 18 through 25. This is a longer section, but again, the main point is this, that there's this sense of anticipation for the life to come. And so the Apostle Paul writes, verse 18, For I consider that the suffering of, the present, of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan with ourselves, within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as children, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Again, the main point in this section is that we live as believers in anticipation of eternity. Again, we look forward to a new existence with God in the new heavens and the new earth. Again, as stated earlier, this world is not the end-all and be-all for us as believers. Therefore, we can endure, as he says in verse 18, that we can endure all the sufferings we experience in this current life because we know this isn't it. If this was all that we had, then yes, we would not... Then you know, we would be more upset than we should be, uh, than we are now, I mean. Because if this is it and all the things go awry, then, then, wow, this isn't that great. We suffer so much in our life. Again, speaking of this present world and this present time that's going on, I mean, our entire world is suffering right now. Entire economies are suffering right now. But we have the hope that there is so much more coming Better yet, we have that assurance. Therefore, we can endure this temporary suffering because this does not compare, as the Apostle Paul says, to the glory that is going to be revealed to us at Christ's second coming. Therefore, we should eagerly await and pray for God's coming. Something to think about for us as believers, if you don't look forward to Christ's coming, I would ask you to Look within and say, why not? Why do you not look forward to Christ's second coming? Maybe you're just not aware of all that there is. And, and honestly, we don't know all that there is, but we know it's greater than what we have. Or maybe you hold this world too tightly. You like the things of this world. We, we live in a comfortable time, even with all that's going on. I bet if we lived in, a, in maybe a third world country and we're suffering on a daily basis, we would look forward to the world to come. And, and I think I mentioned this last week in, in my sermon, 
that part of the reason we suffer or uh, as a result of our suffering is we cling to God even more. And so maybe God has allowed this to happen to us now in our world so that we cling to God a little bit more and we anticipate and look forward to his second coming. So we as believers, we live with this anticipation, or we should. Let's move to my next point. In verses 26 through 27, we have the promise now that the Holy Spirit helps us communicate to God. Have you ever struggled communicating your thoughts or anything to God? You're lost for words. Or maybe you're in so much pain, so much sorrow of what's going on in your life, in your life as you don't know how to pray. Well, we as believers have this promise that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us and communicates all that we're feeling for us. And even when we mess up in our prayers and maybe don't say the right words, you know, miscommunicate, Scripture tells us here, which I'll read about in a minute, is that the Spirit intercedes and communicates for us to God because He knows what we want. Look at what it says. It says, In the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So even when we can't pray for the will of God in our life or we don't know what the will of God is, the Holy Spirit intercedes and does that for us. So just pray. Be sincere about your communication to God. And it seems like the Holy Spirit somehow will correct it and let God know exactly what we're praying and what we need. I hope that brings comfort to you. Well, what else? What else is the hope for the believer today? Well, verses 28 through 30 tells us, and this is one of my favorite verses, and it's often quoted, that God works all things in our life for good. Look at verse 28 through 30. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom He predestined, these He also called. And whom He called, he, these He also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Here we have, since we are the Lord's children, he is working all events in our life for good. The current virus that is, that is just, you know, taken over the world is being used for good by God. The current situation in your life is being used for good by God. God not only redeems our life, but He redeems every situation in our life for His glory. And again, we might not understand it. We might not see that. How can God bring something good out of this situation, whatever it is? And we might not even like it, but we are God's children. We are heirs to all that He has. Why would He not look after us now in this life? Even when hard times come, we know that God has allowed that into our life for a purpose, and that purpose is good. We have to believe that. Scripture tells us that. 
If God is our good, good father, then even the situations in our life are allowed in there for good, or he will turn it for good. Even the most horrible time, God can use that and will use that for his good. And that is a promise again to only his children. Again, remember at the very beginning, he says, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And every promise here for those in Christ. Two more to go here. Starting in verse 31 through verse 34. So not only is God working all things for good, he is working on our behalf, which kind of just cements that thought. God is working on our behalf. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Again, all these things that he's just said. If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, Rather, he who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who also intercedes for us. Here we see not only God the Father, but God the Son interceding for us, working on our behalf. God is not going to allow anything to thwart his work in us. That's what verse 31 says. If God's for us, who can be against us? Or who's against us? And then again in verse 32 Who's going to, or verse 33, who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? Who can call us guilty when God has already said you are not guilty? Nothing comes along in our life where someone could say that, that God is not operating and not working in our life. God is at work. God justifies. He does not condemn us. He calls us righteous. He's working on our behalf. And that's why he can say, therefore, there is no condemnation. Again, because we've already been declared innocent. We are not guilty. We're not guilty. And that is re the reality for us now. And then lastly, the last hope for the believer in this context here is this. Nothing Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Look at verse uh, 30, uh, 35, and we'll read through to the end of verse 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for they, for thy sake, we are being put to death all day long, long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate you who are in Christ from God's love. 
not an economic disaster, not this coronavirus, nothing separates you from the love of God. Now, we're not exempt, obviously, from trials and tribulations in this world, but we can rest assured that nothing comes along in our lives that can separate us from God's love. Nothing could snatch us out of God's arms of love. No one, no trial can steal us away from the Lord. Our our Father does not abandon us in this world, but as I said earlier, He is fighting for us, working on our behalf and working all things together for good. He is going to redeem our life and He's going to redeem every situation of our life for His glory. These are just 10 promises that are a reality for each and every believer today. This is our hope for today. Now, with that said, let me close with just three points of application for each and every one of us. And two of them I mentioned at the beginning, and I'll reiterate those. Since all these things are true, since we have, as believers, all these things in Christ, let me ask you, will you trust and believe in Him? Now, this first one, will you trust and believe in Him? are for those who find themselves or maybe do not know, I don't know if I'm in Christ. And then all these ten promises here are not for you. And maybe you don't know that if they are for you. Because again, you don't know if you've trusted Christ with your life. You haven't trusted what He's done on the cross for you. And maybe you don't even understand that. Well, I would encourage you right now at this moment, that you would pray and cry out to God to help you to understand that, that you would rely on Him for what He's done for you, and that you would experience all these things in your life today. No, it's not going to be like a, you know, you might not feel it, but trust that these things are true. And again, I would encourage you at any moment, and even after this sermon, that you would spend some time crying out to God. And remember, if you're in Christ, or you're going to be in Christ, and you don't know what to say, the Holy Spirit knows your heart. He will intercede for you. He will communicate to God what you're trying to say. But I ask you to take that step of faith and believe in what He's done for you today. And for those of us who are already in Christ, these last two apply to us, and I mentioned them at the very beginning. This is what I hope you will take from these promises. And that is that you would let your love of God continue to increase. As you see all these things, and as I said, each of these could be a sermon in themselves, but as you begin to understand them more and more, that your love for God will increase. That's my prayer. And then lastly, that you would let your trust in God increase in the midst of the current trials. Again, even though you might not understand all that's going on in this world, and it might look bleak, and, there's, and there, I promise you there's probably going to be more trials in your life and in my life. But we can increase in our trust for God because He's working for us and all these things that He's doing for us, He's with us in the very midst. I would encourage you to trust in God more and more. And so again, since all these things are true in Christ, will you trust and believe in Him? Will you you let your love for God continue to increase? And lastly, 
Will you let your trust in God increase in the midst of these current trials? Let's pray. Lord God, Lord, just help us to understand even more who you are and what you've done for us. Help those of us who believe you, Lord, who are in Christ, rejoice for what you have done for us. And Lord, because of that, our love would continue to increase for you. Let us, Lord God, trust you more and more in the midst of the trials of life and even in this current trial. And lastly, Lord, I pray for those who have yet to trust in you that they would do that now, that they would cry out to you and ask, Lord God, that you would forgive them of their sins and that they would turn from them and follow after you and they would experience all these things today. And Lord, I pray this in the name of your Son and because of all that your Son has done for us. Amen. Thanks for joining us in today's study. If you'd like to know more about us or where you can attend one of our services, you can find information online at www.ren.church. That's R-E-N dot church. Thanks for listening.